I was thinking the other day about my growing up years, and I guess I was just especially fortunate one particular way. I, I grew up on the southeast side of Fort Worth, which is kind of interesting because I grew up on Wichita Street. How prescient is that? It's really true. Mary Alice went to Wichita Street Baptist Church. I, the, the first big word my mother taught me to spell was Wichita. I still remember being five years old and her telling me there weren't two T's in it. But what was really good about my upbringing growing up in Fort Worth was I, I grew up in a very diverse neighborhood. And I always went to very diverse schools. And um, many of us were, were Caucasian. Many of us were African American. Many of us were uh, Latino. And so because we all grew up together, um, here's the thing that I find unusual. And, and, and is it just me or in these politically correct days, are people getting meaner than they've ever been before? I just pulled up ESPN this morning, and, and I'm looking at, at the University of Missouri, and, the, and a lot of the athletes are saying, you know, we don't want to participate in athletic events because there's such racial tension, and until that's resolved, we just don't feel like we can play. And, and I'm thinking, I was so fortunate because even though I grew up in a very diverse environment, I never heard, this is a strange thing, but I thought about the other day, in elementary school, middle school, and high school, I never heard, even, even though we were very, very ethnically diverse, I never heard anyone hurl a racial slur at someone. And, and I know that happens, I just never heard that. And a lot of the bullying and stuff that I, I, I hear about today, I don't remember slurs being thrown around. <clears throat> I do remember one, though. The one thing I remember more than anything else, and it got said to me sometimes, and I always felt bad when I heard it. You know, and nothing too could I just say there was no class warfare because none of us had anything in the neighborhood where I lived. But I remember one, and that was Stingy Guts. I don't know, maybe, maybe they never said that on your playground of your school, but from time to time, you would get called Stingy Guts. And what would happen is you would have an opportunity to be generous and for some reason, I, you know, I guess, I didn't feel like being generous. For instance, you could be playing uh, a game and a kid could come up and say, hey, can I play? Nope, can't play, we've already got enough people. Stingy guts, I'm in the lunchroom, you know, and I've got my tray and there's something and I'm not, I don't seem to be eating it. And the kid next to me says, hey, can I, can I have that? And I'm saying, no, it's mine. Stingy guts. And I thought about that. That was the worst thing I ever heard anybody call when I was in school, stingy guts. And in the message on generosity, I thought, well, well, let's talk about stingy guts. And I began to look at the etymology or the history of the words stingy and generous. And I looked at them in Greek since the New Testament was written in Greek. And I kind of got interested in what I found because the word generous means, and this is a literal meaning of it, it means I have plenty so I can share with you. If I'm a generous person, I'm saying I have enough. And because I have enough, I am comfortable sharing with you what I have. Stingy, on the other hand, comes from the root word, and in our English, it's the same thing. It's the word steam, and the idea is biting. You ever hear anybody say, nope, it's mine, you can't have it? Isn't it interesting how we almost bite off the words when we say that? Or maybe we hear our kids say that, it's mine. So there's your difference. Generous means, hey, I've got enough, so I'm comfortable sharing with you. Stingy, on the other hand, is biting. Nope, it's mine, it belongs to me. Well, with that out of the way, let me ask you a question. Are you generous? Are you a generous person? Now, the answer to that's a little complicated, and you don't have to give me an answer anyway, but it may be complicated enough that you have a hard time even answering it for yourself because you're, you could say, like I think I would say, well, I'm generous in some areas. Like I'm generous in sharing credit. I don't hog all the credit, but I might not be so generous in sharing my money. So looking across the board, I might have to struggle with answering the question, am I generous? 
We'll work on that for a couple of weeks. Well, let me ask you an easier question. And being, if all of you who are New Springers, I know the answer to this question, I think. Do you want to be generous? Do you want to be a generous person? I know the answer to that question for me is yes, because I like the way I feel when I'm generous. And I like the way people make me feel when I'm generous. When I was a teenager, I read a story about a man who was the head of the Kiwanis Club. That's a social organization in Chicago, business fraternity organization. And he told the story about, and this happened many, many, many years ago in Chicago. It was a brutally cold day. It's the kind of day we have in Wichita every once in a while where the forecasters tell us it's dangerous to be outside today. It was under 20 degrees. The wind was biting, whipping up and down the street. Sleet was falling. And as he, he said, as I drove home from downtown Chicago, nobody was on the streets. Everybody had scurried inside. But he said, I drove through an area with tenements, and there sitting on the steps was a little eight or nine-year-old boy. And he said, I saw him and realized that no kid should be out on a day like this. So he said, I pulled my car over to the curb, got out, and I said to the little boy, son, you shouldn't be outside at a time like this. And he said, well, I can't go inside. Why not? Well, he said, my dad came home drunk today, and he gave me $10. He gave me a $10 bill and told me to go buy some groceries. And he said, when I went outside, my hands just got so cold, they turned numb, and the wind blew the, 20, the $10 out of my hand. And he said, I, can't, I don't have the groceries, and I don't have the money. And so this guy who was head of the Kiwanis Club, he said, son, well, just go in and tell your dad about what happened, and it'll be okay. And he said, sir, you don't understand my dad. Like I said, he came home drunk. And if I remember the language right of the story, the little boy said, if I go in right now and tell him that, he'll pretty now beat me to death. So the business, and these were different days. The businessman said, well, son, hop in the car. And he took him down to the corner market, took out his billfold, bought the groceries, gave the little boy the change, and drove him back to his house, opened the passenger door, and the boy began to walk up the sidewalk. And just as he got about halfway up, the little boy turned around, came back, opened the door, and threw his arms around the man and said, Mr. I wish you was my daddy. He said, I drove around 20 minutes looking for other kids who had lost their money. <laughs> See, that's what I'm talking about. We like that feeling, don't we? Isn't it strange? We struggle to be generous, and yet we like the feeling when we are. So even if you and I might not be able to say, yes, I'm a generous person, I think we can at least say yes to the second question. I would like to be generous. Well, in order to start working with this, let's eliminate a popular American myth. Talk about your urban myths. Here's, here's a big one. If I had more money, I'd be generous. I've talked to people many times through the years, and I've had them say things like to me, wow, if I could just win the lottery, if I win the lottery, I've got so many charities I want to give money to, I want to give money to help people. I could just help people so much if I won the lottery or if I won the publisher's clearing sweepstakes or if I made a lot more money. Hey, I was just reading an article in the journal yesterday, and a study was performed, and I can't remember who performed it. It may have been Forbes or someone like that, but someone performed a study, an analysis of millionaires who had $25 million or more. Did you know that the majority of the millionaires that they surveyed were worried that they didn't have enough money? They have $25 million plus. Many of them had over $100 million. But there was a worry that they didn't have enough money, and this was statistically, this was statistically across the board. All of them, regardless whether they had 25 million or 125 million, all of them felt that if they had 25% more than they had right now, they would have enough. Peculiar, isn't it? Well, there are people that feel like, well, if I had more money, I would be generous. But here's the truth. 
You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. I want to say that. A good friend of mine wrote that. You don't have to be rich to be generous, but you have to be generous to be generous. We know that story because we know that's true because of a story in Jesus' life. In Mark 12, this is also in another one of the Gospels. But the Bible says Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. Now, guys, every time I put a scripture up for you to read, I'll look through about 10 or 12 different translations, and I'm always looking for two things. Number one, I want to find the clearest English message, and number two, I want to find the message that's most faithful to the original Hebrew and Greek. There's a reason why I chose the New American Standard, because I want you to see that they get it exactly right. The translator said, Jesus observed how people gave. I promise you, that is exactly what it says in Greek. He observed how people gave. And so he, we had an offering a few moments ago. Jesus is observing how you and I give. I need to let you know I will never know because I keep that information back for myself. I never want how much a person gives to New Spring to affect how I pastor. So I won't know unless you want me to know. But here's the thing. Jesus knows. And he isn't just watching how much. Notice that notice it doesn't say Jesus watched how much they gave. It says he watched how they gave. Read on. Many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Now this is the temple. This is the place where these people worship. And Jesus says to them, hey, this widow put in more than the rest of them all together. And the disciples at this moment have to think that Jesus is losing it. Because she put in, trust me on this, she put in the absolute minimum offering anybody could bring to the temple. It was a, it was a law, not a God law, but a people law, that you couldn't just put one thin coin into the treasury. She brought the absolute minimum. And yet Jesus freaks his disciples out when he says, hey, she gave more than everybody. And they've been watching people drop big checks into the offering plate, rich people, ooing and aahing the crowd, no doubt. Then Jesus explains, they all put in of their surplus. Guys, I, I don't want to be too blunt, but could I just say that's, that's typically how most of us give. We put in out of our surplus. Americans are the richest people in the world. And yet Jesus said, this woman, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Nobody compelled her to do that. There was no law. There was no teaching that said she had to do it. It was just an act of extraordinary generosity and faith. And so Jesus is calling attention to it. He is saying she gave more than all of them. From time to time, I'll be reading you know, a business magazine, and I'll read about how this person with you know, $10, $12, 15000000000 billion gives a million dollars to you know. A, college or some organization, I'm thinking, wow, you know, it made, made all the national publications, and yet I know people who make $30,000 a year that are far more generous than that, because a million dollars to someone with billions of dollars is nothing. And so, could we just all look at this and say, God isn't, you know, a person could be very well to do. You could, you could make seven figures a year, eight figures a year, and you could say, wow, I give a great amount of money. Well, it might look like a whole lot to the rest of us, but would it look like a lot to God? On the other hand, you could say, Mark, I don't have very much, and my gift doesn't look very big, but it may look huge to God, because God is looking for, are we generous? Not the dollar amount, but are we generous See, you don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. 
In fact, here's the interesting thing. Piles of studies reveal that the richer people get, the less they give. This is the weirdest thing of all because we all feel if I have more money, I would give more. And yet it's, it's a proven fact. It's a proven, it's a proven premise over and over and over again. The richer we get, the stingier we get. I was reading a study by Patricia. Actually, it was a research, UCLA researcher, Patricia Greenfield. And she was doing an, um, a study for NPR. And she came up with something I thought was really interesting. She said our vocabulary changes as we get richer. She said it is in America true, statistically true, that the richer people are, they use the word get more and the word give less. Isn't it interesting? The richer we get actually changes our vocabulary. It doesn't make sense, but it's true. I mean, I live in the ministry world, and I know it to be statistically true that Christians who make under $50,000 a year tithe at far higher levels than people who make over $50,000 a year. One of my favorite stories is a story about Peter Marshall, who pastored what was called the Church of the Presidents, a Presbyterian church in Washington, D.C. Lincoln had attended that church in the 1800s. But Peter Marshall was a Scottish immigrant, one of the greatest leaders America ever had. And he pastored the church in the 40s, died young. He was chaplain of the Senate, phenomenal communicator. But a little bit of a, I don't know, a little bit of a renegade. So that's one reason I love Peter Marshall. But anyway, because he, he would just say things that were really, really off the cuff, but powerful. Anyway, there was a, as you can imagine, being in D.C., there were a lot of really, really rich people who were in his church. And there was a guy who told Peter Marshall, he said, you know, Pastor, when I made $20,000 a year, I didn't have any problem bringing God 10%. He said, that was just $40 a week. He said, I brought the $40. But he said, no, I make a half million dollars a year. And he said, I just can't bring God $1,000 a week. And so Dr. Marshall said, well, let me pray for you. So he slipped his arm around his shoulders. And he said, dear God, I'm going to ask for my brother here. He, he found it so easy to tithe when he made $20,000 a year. God, I just want you to cut his pay back to $20,000. <laughs> and long before Peter Marshall got to amen, the man began to plead with him. Please, sir, please. Marshall was a powerful man of prayer. Please, God, don't, don't do that. <laughs> well, the fact of the matter is, it's just a proven thing. The richer we get, the more stingy guts we have or become. Well, Paul was talking to some Christians who had stingy guts, and we're going to read in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, so if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can fire it up and turn it to that text. And, and let me just give you the backstory here. The church at Jerusalem was going through a really, really tough time, and so Paul had challenged all the early churches in the first century to get, to get together an offering to help these poor people who were suffering. And of all the churches that should have been quick to respond, the church at Corinth. And I don't want to tell you too much about history, but let me just say this. Corinth was very much like America. It was very well-to-do. It was the confluence of Roman muscle, Greek intellectualism, Oriental thought. But most of all, it was a business place. And Corinth was wealthy, like Americans are wealthy. Now, Paul is going to write the Corinthian church, and he is going to tell them about the churches of Macedonia. Now, that might not sound like a whole lot on the surface, but the Macedonian churches were dirt poor, and on top of that, they were going through persecution. So, just so that we'll have a context for this, the Corinthian church is like America, and the Macedonian church would be like the churches in Africa and China, who are very poor and going through really tough times. And by the way, you know what? There are some really committed believers 
in other places in America. I just want to make sure we all know that. I was in Houston Airport the other day. <clears throat> you ever meet somebody and you just know they have a story to tell? I ran into a wonderful lady and she had this wonderful smile and just sort of knew from talking to her, I could just sort of feel that she was a Christ follower. So we just began to talk. And she told me the story that she had come from Nigeria. And, uh, her, and she lived in one village, and she volunteered in a church that was in another village on a daily basis. And she was walking from her village to the church, and she got to the bridge, and the pastor of her church was waving at her, saying, go away, go away. What she didn't realize was that Boko Haram had invaded her village and was slaughtering Christians. She barely got out with her life and was a shoeshine lady for many years, put her son through med school. Well, there are many brothers and sisters that you and I have in persecuted places. So I just want you to understand when Paul writes to Corinthian believers, writing people like us, when he's writing about people in Macedonia, he's writing like the friend I made in the Houston airport that day. He says to the church, Corinthian church, I want to tell you what God in his grace has done for the churches in Macedonia. Though they've been going through much trouble and hard times, they have mixed their wonderful joy with their deep poverty and the result has been an overflow of giving to others. They not only gave what they could afford, but far more. Well, that would be curious how they did that, but we'll find that out in just a minute. And I can testify that they did it because they wanted to and not because of nagging on my part. Oh, one more time. You don't have to be rich to be generous. You have to be generous to be generous. Well, let's, before we start talking about the metrics of generosity, why do we struggle to talk about this? Honestly, I'm just going to be frank with you. I don't talk much about money, which is peculiar because Jesus talked more about it than he talked about any other subject. He talked about money more than he talked about heaven, hell, prayer. He talked about so, But I struggle to do it. Because, see, here's the, 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 the moment we start talking about generosity, there's tension in the air. At New Spring, we talk pretty openly about all kinds of subjects. I can talk about sex. I can talk about pop, popular cultural issues. I can talk about all, all kinds of things. And we don't feel the tension that we feel when we talk about money. So psychologically, then, why do we have tension when we talk about generosity? And this is a two-inch putt, so we'll work through it real quickly here. And then we'll all take a deep breath. I'll tell you why. When, I don't carry currency much, but when I opened my wallet, I found a $20 bill. Now, here's the thing. I'm like you. Um, if I don't deal with my spirit, I love money. Well, what do I love? Do I love the paper? Do I love the coinage? Do I love, do I love what's represented when I look at my bank statement? What is it that I love? Here's the deal. I don't love the paper. I love this because it's power. See, that's it. This is power. This is the power to get what I want um, within limits. But by and large, this is the power to get what I want. So here's the thing. Money has everything to do with what you love. When you go shopping, there is a continual test of love. Like, I'll go to Costco, I think, sometime today, because I have to go to Costco every day. <laughs> and so I'm going to walk down through the aisles of Costco, and I've got money, and there are things there that I love. And so when I see those things on the shelf, I'm going to ask myself, which do I love more? Do I love the $20 and the power to acquire things later, or do I love this more? I've got this constant thing going on. Do I love the money more? Do I love this? Every time you go shopping, that is, do I love this money more? Do I like this shirt more? That, that's the deal. It's all about, it's about money being power, and it's a test of love. Now, there are times when I go shopping, and I think, uh, do I love that more than I love my money? Well, after I look at how many calories it has, how heavy it is to move, you know, or, or, or I think about my future. 
then I think, well, no, you know what? I love, I love the money more than I love this, and so I'm putting it back in my pocket. Now, here's the thing. Every time we use money, there's a tipping point. There's a point where I say, I love this more than I love the $20, so down it goes. If I go into debt, I say I love it more than I love my future, power in the future to get good things. That's it. And that's why we have the tension. And, and see, the issue is a couple things. Number one, we don't want to draw the connection between money and love. That's why we, that's why we get tense in here. Because we, don't, we want to pretend that doesn't exist. We want to think, I just use money like everybody else uses money. We never want to go to that place that says, this is a continual running test between money and love. Because if I ever get on that slippery slope of admitting that, i got a couple of opportunities or a couple of possibilities. Number one, I'll go through the internal wrestling of thinking to myself, am I willing to reorient my life with the understanding that money is a continual test of love? Or number two, I'm going to have to admit that a lot of things I say I love, I really don't love the way I say I love them, and money is proof of it. See, that's why we have the tension. Because here's the deal. If you want to know what you really love, just look at your expenditures over the last month. I mean, if you say you love your wife, look at your expenditures. I think in most cases, most guys could say, I'm comfortable with that. If you say you love your kids, then look at your expenditures. You say, Mark, I'm real good with that one. <laughs> but that's it. If you just want to know what you love, let, let's just blow the smoke out of there. I mean, let's, let's get rid of all the hypocrisy and all the goofiness. The fact of the matter is, how you spend your money tells us what you love. And, and I know, maybe this is sensitive, but many of us say we love God, we worship. We say, oh, I love God. We'll sing the songs of love God, and yet we spend more money on cable television. And that's why it's sensitive. And we'll say things like, well, I, all, the, all they want is my money and this and that and all that other stuff. And, and truth be told, like I said, I'll never know what you give. This is between you and Jesus. It's not between you and me. I'm just explaining why this is a sensitive topic. We don't want to admit that money and love go together, but they do. And the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. The Bible says, talking about this offering, this is one way to prove that your love is real, that it goes beyond mere words. Well, Paul knows that the Corinthians are struggling with this, and he knows you and I are struggling with it too. So here's what I really love, New Spring. Instead of putting them on a guilt trip about being stingy guts, he begins to line out for them the opportunities associated with being generous. And I love that. And so here's what I'm going to do in the brief time that we have left with this talk. I'm going to read the scripture. There's kind of a paragraph here. And then we're going to take it apart. And we're going to look at four or five metrics that God has in regard to generosity. So here we go. Let's read and then we'll, we'll talk. I thought it necessary, he said, to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you have promised, and then it will be ready as a generous gift, not one grudgingly given. So we know the target here. Paul is challenging the Corinthian church the way I'm challenging you to be generous. But now he's going to give them the God metrics of generosity. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should give what he or she has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now, 
He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. I love verse 11. You will be made rich. Look at this prepositional phrase. In every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. Okay, here are the generosity metrics from God. Number one, God looks at generous money as seed. You know, in our discussions about energy, we hear a lot about renewable energy. And I don't know that I know all the answers to that, but I do know this. I know that God is saying, look, you have two kinds of money. You have dead money, which is money that we use on ourselves, and you got living money. Anytime you have generous money, you've got something that's alive. The way God looks at it, it's a renewable resource. It's seed. So here's the thing. It, you know, it, and there's nothing wrong with this. If I go to the movies today, if I take my else to the movies, that's a fine thing. But that's dead money. On the other hand, if I'm generous with something at that point, that's not the end of that money. It's just like a, a farmer who's planting cor- corn today. He doesn't cry as he plants corn thinking, this is the last corn I'll ever have. This is the last time I'll ever see it. He knows he's planting seed. He's going to get a harvest. So let's just... Book that. When you have generous money, God is saying it's a renewable resource. It's seed. Number two, he says, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously, some of you have a translation that says bountifully, whoever sows generously will also reap generously or bountifully. Now, here's the cool thing. Uh, Sparingly there, really, believe it or not, it's the Greek word that means stingy. So God is saying if you sow a stingy crop, you'll have a stingy harvest. If you sow a generous crop, you'll have a generous harvest. Interesting. The the word there for generous is the word eulogio. We get our word eulogy from that. You know, if you go to a funeral, you hear a eulogy, uh, which are, you know, eulogio, the the prefix you means good, logos means to speak. So it means good word. So if you go to a funeral, you hear a eulogy, you're hearing a good word about somebody. By the way, we need to give our eulogies to people while they're alive, don't we? And so, God is saying this, listen, if you sow a crop that is so good that you would love to talk about it and tell others about it, God is saying you will get a harvest that is so huge, you'll be excited to tell people what what I've done in your life, and other people will talk about it. Here's the third thing. God is in charge of the harvest. This I love more than anything else. You know, many times, Mary Alice and I, as we've given, and the greatest investment we've made has been in New Spring Church. And there have been times, seasons in our life where we really were, we didn't have much. And we were wondering how it was going to work. But I can just tell you something. I'll be the first to testify. God is in charge of the harvest. You know, here's the deal. In this economic downturn that we've had the last few years, oh, we're, in the re- we're in the recovery period right now, right? Is this a recovery? Um, it's interesting that the people have put their money in funds, in, in fund managers, um, if, you, if you have uh, Berkshire Hathaway, then Warren Buffett, he's, he's in charge of the harvest. He's the fund manager. <laughs> God is saying that if we are generous, he becomes the manager, he becomes our fund manager. He is the Lord of the harvest. Scripture says that in the book of Matthew chapter 9, verse 38. Pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest. But now, here's the specifics of it. Verse 8 of chapter 9. God is able to make all grace abound to you. What is grace? The the meaning of the word grace is God giving us what we don't deserve. How many of us could use some grace? So the Bible says God is able. You say, well, Mark, the economy looks really bad. God is able. Mark, I don't know how it's going to happen. Neither do I. I just know God is able to do what? To make all grace 
abound toward you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Now let me deal with a little caveat here. Some of us are always a little bit concerned about this because we've heard like television preachers say, oh, if you'll give to their ministry, if you'll help them buy the private jet, then God will give you a Mercedes Benz. And, and that's a little, we know that's nuts. Here's the thing I want to make sure you do understand. If God does want you to be blessed, but he doesn't want you to be blessed so you can buy a third vacation home necessarily. We are made rich in order to be generous. God doesn't want you to be a cul-de-sac. He wants you to be a, a thoroughfare. So he blesses you so that you can be generous. And so that when you're generous, he can bless you more so that you can be even more generous. The Bible says you will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. We're not, we're not made to be rich so that we can be fat, conspicuous consumers. We are made rich to change more people's lives. You know, Mary Alice was talking to me about this yesterday before I came to the 4 o'clock service. And she's, Mary Alice almost never gives me any advice about a message. But yesterday she did. She said, Mark, be sure to remind people that it isn't just financial blessings. I want to read that one more time. You'll be made rich in every way. See, if somebody grows your money, they make you richer in one way. God is able to make you rich in every way. She said, Mark, be sure to tell them that God blesses in so many ways and in so many things that money cannot buy. That was a good word. Credit Morales for that. Well, we'll come to the end of our talk now. And, and I know, like I said, it's always a little bit tense when we talk about money. And we know why now. We understand the psychology of why it's tense. We don't want to talk about money being relational to love. So it could be that somebody's sitting here today and you're saying, Mark, I just uh, think you're really just asking for money for the church. Well, yeah, I am. <laughs> I'm not a bit squeamish about that. You say, well, Mark, I think the church is the people and so I don't know about buildings. Well, then how about this? How about your home is just your family? You don't need a house. The sustainability of your home is your house. So we'll set that aside. But, but yeah, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, I was in a meeting the other day. I'm not really part of this denomination, but the largest American denomination. And they sent out a letter. The mission agency sent out a letter asking that they cut 300 from their missionary team and encouraging others to retire early. Because as Americans go forward here, we're, people are giving less and less to God's work. So no, I'm, I'm not a bit squeamish about saying, yeah, I, I think especially, here's the deal, if I were young, I mean, I'm 59, so I, my, my time on this planet is, is getting shorter, but if I were young here, I would care a great deal about God's work being here for my kids. Yeah. But I'm talking about so much more than that. I'm talking about generosity. And it could be that you and I would say, well, I just don't feel the reason to be generous. Well, I rarely ever talk this bluntly, but I think you have to ask yourself a question. I think you have to ask yourself, am I a Christ follower? I mean, when you, when you drive off the campus today, look at the cross. Because here's the thing. When God challenges me to be generous, I realize that he's only asking me to give a portion when Jesus has given everything. 
This story has made the rounds. You know how it is when stories make the rounds, it gets embellished. It was in Chicken Soup for the Soul, but I think it had gone through some embellishment. When I read the story, it was a, it was a news story. Seems that in Vietnam, when we were having, when the Vietnam War was going on, a village, Vietnamese village got shelled and children were injured. And so this American doctor was working on a little girl whose life was in danger and then she needed a blood transfusion. Her brother, little, little boy, was a perfect match. And so the doctor was trying to get the little boy to understand he needed to give some of his blood so his sister could live. But the doctor couldn't speak Vietnamese, so he had a translator there. And he said, would you just tell the little boy he needs to give up some of his blood so his sister can live? So the translator tried as best she could to explain to the little boy the process and ask him if he were willing to do it. And the little boy said, yes, nodded, yes, he'd be willing to do it. So the doctor did the stick for the IV, and the blood began to flow out of him. And the boy didn't cry when he stuck him. But strangely enough, as the transfusion went on, the boy just began to sob quietly. And the doctor was concerned about this because he said, well, he shouldn't be hurting because the only time he should have hurt was when we did the stick. So he asked the translator, he said, well, talk to the little boy and ask him why he's crying. And when the translator asked him, she began to cry. She told the doctor. She said he misunderstood. He thought when we were asking him to give up blood for his sister that we were asking him to give up all of his blood. He was just waiting to die. Two thousand years ago, the Son of God went through more than one stick. He was stuck quite a few times. And he hung naked on a cross for six hours to pay for your sins and my sins. And from the cross today, he looks at me, and he wants to know, Mark, are you generous? I can tell people no. I just have a hard time looking in the face of the Son of God if I truly am a Christ follower and telling him, it's mine. You can't have it. I don't know about you, but if I'm not generous, and I will tell you this, this message worked me over several weeks ago when I was working on it. I want to be generous. I don't want to be a person who's stingy guts. I want to be a person who says, by the goodness of God, I have enough I can share with you. Thanks. See you next weekend.